0: Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. This paper aims to diagnose the fatal flaw of new natural law action theory. Several commentators have claimed that new natural law action theorists are prone to make convenient redescriptions of actions, justifying actions that would otherwise be deemed immoral. The real issue with new natural law action theory, however, is not redescriptions. The real issue runs deeper. Any penchant for peculiar descriptions arises from the fatal flaw of focusing upon intending effects rather than intending actions. All intention of actions is only secondary on their account, reduced to some intention of an effect. In a recent article, then, uh, Stephen Jensen may have missed the mark. He says quote, The new natural law action theory is not necessarily prone to fanciful redescriptions of actions, it has no fatal flaw that leads its proponents to come up with original descriptions. Rather, the theory simply leaves open the possibility, quote. To the contrary, new natural law theorists begin with a paradigm that leads to error. In fact, their paradigm not only prevents them from reaching the correct answers, from the beginning, it prevents them from asking the right questions. In a recent article, for instance, Lawrence Masick aims to discover what effect, or effects, Agents intend while acting. Similarly, Patrick Lee writes a paper focusing upon what effects are intended and what effects are foreseen. Already, we have a problem. We do speak, loosely, of intending effects. Most properly, however, we intend actions and not effects. Masic, however, insists that, quote, the strict definition applies to effects, not actions, close quote. Strict intention, their, their terminology, is integral to new natural law action theory. Indeed, the criticisms in this paper most properly apply to strict intention. New natural law action theory is the most prominent view that affirms strict intention. But strict intention, with its fatal flaw, is not wedded to new natural law. For convenience, then, we will henceforth give the label rigorists to those who defend strict intention. For rigorists, actions are entirely reduced to the intention of effects. Once we have determined the effects intended, we then know exactly what action is intended. The intention of actions is only an afterthought. Of course, the emphasis upon effects does not prevent rigorists from speaking about intending actions of various sorts. How could it be otherwise? The verb intend is naturally followed by an infinitive, which expresses action. Despite this concession to ordinary language, strict intention is wedded to the intention of effects. From this often unacknowledged starting point flows (coughs) a multitude of consequences. Strict intention is at a loss to account for a vast array of common intentions. One intended effect, for instance, identifies the act of adultery. The starting point also leads to a focus upon sometimes counterintuitive descriptions rather than upon realities. Other consequences not examined in this paper also follow. One casualty of this starting point, for instance, is the coherence of perverted faculty arguments. I'll begin with a a brief account of what strict intention says. Broad accounts of intention differ from one another, sometimes quite remarkably, but they all have something in common, something that makes them broad. They all maintain that actions have something more to them, beyond their effect, that enters into intention. Consequently, intention of actions is broader than mere intention of effects. Strict intention has no room for this something more, because it is, as Christopher Tollifson puts it, entirely a first-person account. This phrase refers to the idea that an internal state, typically called intention, entirely determines the character of an agent's actions. Actions do not have a character of their own apart from this internal subjective state since intention entirely determines the character of actions the paramount question concerns the content of intention what does an agent intend more precisely what effects does an agent intend another question becomes secondary what actions does an agent intend according to strict intention the content of intention includes the goal and those means needed to achieve the goal Since the goal proves rather unproblematic, all effort concentrates upon the question of what counts as a means. The means are what is found needful for the goal. They are what contribute to the goal. These are various ways that they express it. Suppose that a niece kills her uncle in order to gain the inheritance. In the act of firing a gun, she not only kills her uncle, she also makes a noise, wakes the neighbor, stains the carpet, Saddens the family of her victim, and so on. These multiple descriptions are based upon the many effects of her one action. From this array of actions, we must distinguish what the niece intends from what she merely foresees but does not intend. The niece intends death because that is her goal. What contributes to this goal? The firing of the gun. In contrast, the noise and the waking of the neighbor does not contribute to her goal. Indeed, she might try to avoid waking the neighbor, perhaps by using a silencer. If someone claims that the niece wakes the neighbor in order to kill her uncle, rigorous can reply, in terms of effects, that the firing of the gun causes the neighbor to wake. The neighbor waking does not cause the gun to fire. For rigorous, what contributes to the goal turns out to be rather ethereal. It depends not upon the reali- realities, but upon descriptions. As Tollson P- puts the matter, quote, states of affairs are chosen under a description, and it is only as so chosen that they are part of the agent's intention. Close quote. Consider the case of someone defending herself against an assailant. She fires a gun which contributes to the goal of saving her life. As it turns out, however, it contributes to the goal under the description stopping the attack, but not under the description injuring the assailant. The action of firing the gun is intelligibly attractive not because it injures the assailants, but because it stops the attack. Similarly, in the craniotomy case, which, if you're not familiar, is the case where... Uh, the baby's head is too large to fit through the woman's pelvis. Now we just do a C-section, but uh, before safe C-sections, they might perform a craniotomy, which is basically taking forceps and crushing the head of the baby. Right? So, uh, and then the baby's head being smaller, having been crushed, uh, the uh, labor can be brought to an end. So, similarly, in the craniotomy case, the doctor performs the craniotomy under the description, quote, reducing the size of the baby's head, not under the description injuring the baby. What matters is what is needful to achieve the goal. More precisely, what matters is the description under which it is needful. The craniotomy is intelligibly attractive not insofar as it injures the baby, but insofar as it reduces the size of the baby's head. The above description of strict intention should suffice. It provides the essential features of strict intention. So we now proceed to my criticism. The first defect of strict intention is the most obvious. It simply does not work for a vast array of human actions. The point becomes clear when rigorists respond to a particular objection arising from Jensen against the strict intention. Adulterers and thieves, according to Jensen's complaint, do not, under strict intention, intend to commit adultery or to steal. In replying to this objection, the rigorous note that a thief might be guilty of theft even if he does not intend to commit theft. In other words, they concede the point. According to strict intention, thieves do not intend to commit theft. They are simply guilty of theft. If a thief does not, strictly speaking, intend to commit theft, then what does he intend in the act of stealing? More precisely, what effect does he intend? Perhaps he intends the effect of the car being in his possession. Unfortunately, this intention is not precise enough. It is compatible, for instance, with the intention to buy the car. Perhaps the thief intends to transfer the use of the car to himself, Against the wishes of the proper owner. Unfortunately, transferring use is an action, not an effect. Perhaps then he intends a transference of use, the action considered in the abstract, that does not conform with the wish of the proper owner. This description perhaps gets close, but it does not seem quite to capture what the thief has in mind. It omits, for instance, the notion of taking, which is an action. Furthermore, this description is far from what the thief would pose to himself as his intention. Adulterers do not fare any better. What do they intend in the act of adultery? More precisely, what effect do they intend? Do they intend pleasure? Perhaps. Pleasure can at least be an effect of their action. This answer, however, is hardly satisfying. The goal of pleasure is far from distinctive of adultery. It might apply to many marital acts, to fornication, to rape, and to so on. Does the adulterer intend to have sexual intercourse? No, because that's an action, not an effect. Does the adulterer intend that his body, as an effect of his intention, move in certain ways? Perhaps such a contorted description can fit within the strict account, but it is certainly not how the adulterer would pose his intention to himself. The problem with theft and adultery is not peculiar. Our days are filled with intentions that cannot be crammed into the box of strict intention for effects. What does the niece intend, for instance, when she tells the detective what she did on the day of the murder? Does she intend that the detective come to have an awareness of what she did? To some extent she does, although obviously she also wants to conceal what she did. Furthermore, this awareness in the detective does seem to be an effect of her action. Unfortunately, this description, which expresses only her remote goal, hardly captures what she is about. She does not intend, for instance, that the awareness simply pop into the detective's mind. Rather, she intends to convey, oops, in action, the idea to him. Does she intend that certain sounds arising from her own mouth come to be in the air It seems so, and these sounds are effects of what she intends. Once again, however, this description hardly captures her intention. Further, she would never have formed such an intention in her own mind. The first problem with strict intention, then, is that it does not apply to many of our actions. For a significant subset of actions, however, strict intention seems more promising. Some actions are described largely in terms of their effects. The action of heating, for instance, is identified, even in its name, by the effect of heat. The act of killing is identified through the effect of death. For these actions, the intention of the effect, in terms of which the action is described, lines up pretty well with the intention of the action. The focus of strict intention upon intending effects, then, need not seem so odd in these cases. Indeed, it will often prove quite helpful. Even for these actions, however, the intention of effects does not quite fit the reality. When the niece kills her uncle, we do readily say that she intends the effect of death. By itself, however, this observation is quite inadequate. This description does not fully capture what she intends in acting. It does not distinguish, for instance, her intention from a want or a wish. Perhaps the nephew wants the uncle to be dead, but He would never go so far as intending his death. That is, he would never intend to kill the uncle. He just hopes that the uncle dies of a heart attack. A more complete description would suggest that the niece intends the death of her uncle insofar as it arises from herself. This description might fit within the constraints of strict intention, and it does distinguish the niece from the nephew niece herself, however, is not likely to propose such an awkward intention to herself as she sets about pulling the trigger. Despite these deficiencies, we might grant <coughs> me, that strict intention applies fairly well to this limited subset of actions. Nevertheless, strict intention has other problems, even for these actions. The focus upon effects, rather than actions, will, for reasons that will be explained further along, lead to a corresponding focus upon descriptions rather than realities. Masick rightly admonishes Jensen for accusing rigorists of redescribing actions. This way of putting the matter presupposes a description that can be subsequently redescribed. This original description, however, is precisely what rigorists are attempting to ferret out. The real issue is not over re-descriptions, Rather, it concerns a focus upon diverse descriptions as opposed to a unified reality. The difference between descriptions and a unified reality is made clear by a case concocted by Alexander Kruitz, a proponent of some version of strict intention, although he's not a new national law theorist. This is a quote, uh, rather humorous example. An eccentric, literalistic, but always truthful magnate tells Sam he will donate to famine relief, saving hundreds of lives, if and only if Sam follows his directions to the iota. Sam is to purchase a gun, sneak at night into a zoo owned by the magnate, and kill the first mammal he sees. Unfortunately, the first mammal Sam sees is the zookeeper, and he shoots her. When Sam is charged with murder, he argues that he did not intend to kill the human there, but only to kill the mammal. End of quote. Proust, of course, is speaking in terms of intending actions, but we can easily transfer to the terminology of effects. Sam does not intend the death of a human being. He intends only the death of a mammal. That is, after all, what he needs to achieve his goal. To say the least, this conclusion seems counterintuitive. After all, these two, the death of a human being and the death of the mammal, seem to differ only in description and not in reality. The difficulty in this case is that one in the same reality has multiple descriptions. One in the same death of the zookeeper may be described as the death of a mammal or as the death of a human being. The distinct descriptions arise from the way the human mind knows reality. It separates in the mind... Through an action typically called abstraction what is united in reality in reality we have a single individual the zookeeper and a single death in our minds we distinguish between a a mammal and a human being the first person approach of strict intention favors the distinction in the mind over the identity in reality which is why proof suggests that sam did not intend to kill a human being According to strict intention, the means are chosen under the description by which they are intelligibly attractive. What is intelligibly attractive to Sam is the death of a mammal. The death of a human being is presumably repugnant. In reality, of course, the death of the mammal is identical with the death of a human being. The descriptions, and not the unified reality, however, provide the intelligible attraction. The fatal flaw of strict intention does not prevent rigorous from discovering distinct realities. Nevertheless, the focus on distinct descriptions might handicap them in the effort to sort out the realities. They may not always recognize when they are dealing with differences in descriptions and when they are dealing with differences in reality. At the very least, their theory causes a dissonance, which is most evident in Proust's zookeeper case where the obvious unity of the reality conflicts with the diversity in descriptions that appears relevant to strict intention. We should not be surprised, then, to discover that Peirce's case generates some rather odd reactions from rigorists. They are loath to reach the counterintuitive conclusion that the theory seems to demand. Patrick Lee, for instance, argues that Sam intends, according to strict intention, not only to kill a mammal but also to kill a human being. In short, Lee wishes to align strict intention with common sense intuitions. Because this conclusion does not readily follow from the theory itself, Lee's argument is rather involved. In brief, Lee points out that the zookeeper is essentially a human being and also a mammal. Consequently, by intending to kill this concrete zookeeper, Sam must intend not only to kill a mammal, but also to kill a human being. Despite his efforts, Lee's argument fails to account for other intuitions. The zookeeper is not essentially a zookeeper, nor is she essentially a female. Nevertheless, Sam, at least intuitively, intends to kill a zookeeper and a female, furthermore, uh, which Lee would not conclude given his argument. Furthermore, Lee's insistence upon essential features of concrete effects seems like an ad hoc adjustment to strict intention aimed at patching over a counterintuitive conclusion. In the craniotomy case, the doctor, on account of cephalopelvic disproportion, uses forceps to crush the head of the baby who cannot otherwise be delivered. The doctor's action can be described as crushing a skull, as harming the baby, as reducing the size of the baby's head, as killing the baby, as saving the mother, and so on. Do these multiple descriptions correspond to a single effect in reality that has multiple descriptions or do they involve distinct effects? In some cases, the effects are clearly distinct. The saved life of the mother, for instance, is clearly distinct from the effect of the death of the baby. In other cases, the unity or diversity is not so clear. Is the narrowed head identical with a crushed skull? Is it identical with harm to the baby? In answer to the first question, Tullison and Lee conclude that the narrowed head is not identical with a crushed skull. The doctor need intend only to narrow the head and not to crush the skull. They note that in some instances of cephalopelvic disproportion, the baby can be delivered without crushing the skull. Temporarily compressing the skull suffices. The effect of a narrowed head, they effectively conclude, is not identical to the effect of a crushed skull, since sometimes a baby's head can be narrowed with a milder measure of compression. Their reliance upon descriptions has separated Tullison and Lee far from the reality. They now employ merely hypothetical descriptions, descriptions that do not apply to the situation at hand, but to some other situation. The effect needed to end the labor is a narrowing of the head, sufficient to let the baby pass through the mother's pelvis. Sometimes, indeed, temporary compression suffices for this narrowing. But by the time the doctor is performing a a craniotomy, she has already attempted this measure and found it insufficient. What she needs now is a crushing. In her situation, then, the narrowed head is identical with the effect of a crushed skull. Only in other situations is compression sufficient. Nevertheless, the description of uh, the, the despotism of descriptions so guides the thought of Tullifson and Lee that they deny the unified reality of the effect based upon descriptions of other situations. When addressing the third question, that is, is crushing the skull identical to the harm uh, to the baby? Masick concludes that the crushed skull and harm are distinct effects. The crushed skull causes harm to the baby, and a cause cannot be identical with its effect. The crushed skull certainly does cause the harm of death. It also causes other harms, such as massive blood loss. A crushed skull is not the same effect in reality as loss of blood. The two descriptions correspond to two distinct effects. Perhaps the claim of identity, however, does not concern these harms. Thomas Kavanagh, for instance, seems to think that the effect of having a crushed skull is itself a harm. Suppose that Sam claims he never intended to harm the zookeeper. He intended only to kill her. After all, the magnate required only the effect of death. He did not require the effect of harm. What mattered to me, Sam might say, is that a mammal was dead not that a mammal and a human being at that was harmed. His claims are unpersuasive because we think that death is itself harm. A single effect can be considered in diverse ways, as we have seen. In this case, it might be considered as the cessation of living activity, and it also might be considered as harm to the organism. Another case in the literature provides a closer parallel to the craniotomy. In order to test a new sword, A samurai warrior waylays a passerby and makes a cut, clean through, from the shoulder down to the opposite hip. When accused of killing the passerby, the samurai protests that he never intended the effect of death. He intended only to test the sword, making sure that it could cut a person in half from the shoulder to the hip. It was this cut, and not death, that he needed in order to achieve his goal samurai seems to distinguish correctly between two separate effects. The effect of being cut in half is not exactly the same effect as death. But now suppose that the samurai says that he never intended to harm the passerby. He intended only the effect of being cut in half. The effect of harm did not in any way help him achieve his goal. He might point out that being cut in half is not itself harm because it causes harm. It causes death, and it causes massive blood loss, and so on. As with the craniotomy, we might concede that being cut in half does indeed cause certain harms, such as death, and that these harms are a distinct effect from being cut in half. At the same time, however, we might insist that being cut in half is itself a kind of harm, and a pretty serious one. The single effect in reality has multiple descriptions in the mind. As has now become evident, strict intention is more concerned with distinctions and descriptions than it is with unity in reality. The fundamental cause of the rigorous predilection for descriptions is their focus upon intending effects rather than actions. Rigorous disregard for actions is the primary culprit encouraging a multiplicity of sometimes convenient descriptions. It is the fatal flaw of strict intention. According to Aristotle, actions involve an agent that brings about the change in some subject. When fire heats water, for instance, fire is the agent that brings about the change of increased temperature within the subject of water. When the niece kills her uncle, she is the agent that brings about the change of death into the subject of the uncle. Human actions are more complicated because they involve multiple powers acting in concert. The niece, for instance, uses her reason, her will, the power to move her body uh, and the power to move her body or the locomotive power. She uses her reason to understand the effect of death and to recognize the causes she needs to achieve this effect. She uses her will to desire death as a certain kind of good and to move her body. She uses the locomotive power to point the gun and pull the trigger. This example, because it uses beyond reason and will, only the locomotive power, obscures an important feature of human actions. Adultery is a more illuminating example. It involves the locomotive power, but in addition, it engages the power of reproduction. Because of this latter power, and not just because of bodily movements, adultery is a sexual act. In this case, then, the bodily power engaged, reproduction, plays a clear role in defining the action, over and above the role played by the powers of reason and will, over and above, that is, any intention of effects. Rigorous, recognizing, within human actions, the central role of reason and will, which are the distinctive human powers, ignore the importance of other powers. Their account includes only reason, will, and the effects that are brought about. Actions are defined on their account in terms of the effects produced, but only as considered under the descriptions that reason proposes as attractive to the will. No other powers enter their account of human actions. Consequently, the action of adultery is perplexing. It is a sexual act because it engages the power of reproduction, but strict intention has ignored the importance of this power. Returning to Aristotle, we can see that the act of adultery involves a change arising from the power of reproduction. The male agent introduces new life into the female subject of the change. With reason and will, however, this change need not be intended. Indeed, it may be opposed by means of contraception or some other things. The adulterer need not intend to bring about the effect of new life, Rigorous, then, are at a loss to identify the effect intended. The effect is hidden within the power of reproduction, which itself has directed the effect of new life. With his reason and will, the adulterer need not intend this effect. He need intend only to apply the power, which is directed to this effect, to some subject. The inadequacy of strict intention extends to a whole host of actions, beyond sexual actions, because the powers engaged within our human actions need not be limited to the formal powers of the soul identified within Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy. Consider the example of the niece telling the detective what she did on the day of the murder. What power does she engage in her action? Clearly, she engages the locomotive power, but she also engages what might be called the power to communicate or the power to speak. The power to communicate does not fall within the list of powers of the soul. Nevertheless, it is distinct from powers on this list through its direction toward the effect of introducing ideas, found in the agent, within the subject of the listener. The niece's action, like the act of adultery, cannot be identified simply in terms of an effect intended. Just as the act of adultery is essentially defined in terms of the power of reproduction, So the act of telling the detective about her day is essentially defined in terms of the power of communication, a power that is itself directed to a certain change in a certain subject. Other powers also enter into human actions. The act of buying a red sports car, for instance, is defined in terms of a power, the power to buy and sell, directed upon a certain subject, a red sports car. This power is not in the formal list of powers of the soul. Nevertheless, it is directed to the distinct effect of a legal change of ownership. Reason and will are clearly integral to these conventional powers, (coughs) but they do not play a simplistic role of intending some effect under a description. Rather, reason and will interact with a locomotive power. Through this interaction, the power of locomotion becomes the power to change the world around us. And with the addition of certain social conventions, this new power is further transformed into the power to make various social changes, such as buying and selling. The picture that emerges is not filled with agents intending effects, it is filled with agents engaging powers, which powers are themselves directed towards some effect. A complete account of intention, then, involves not only effects, it involves all three elements of actions. the agent, the effect, and the subject. The first element, the agent, is typically manifested by some power of the person. The second element, the effect, is often simply the effect to which the power is directed. It is not the effect intended by reason and will, at least it need not be. Rather, this effect enters intention only obliquely by way of the power engaged. For this reason, strict intention proves inadequate to describe the intentions of most of our actions, from sexual intercourse to eating ice cream. Within intention, the third element, the subject to which the power is directed, is far from negligible. Sam directs his power to change the world, which he directs in particular to the effect of death, upon the subject of the zookeeper, who is indeed a human being. Sam does not intend simply death or even the death of a mammal or even the death of a human being. Rather, he intends an action. He intends to bring about death in this human being. In the world of strict intention, the will, as formed by deliberative reason, interacts directly with effects. In the real world, the will reaches out to effects only by way of some action that arises from a power distinct from the will. Sam does not directly intend the death of a human being, of a mammal, or of anything else. He intends to engage his power to bring about death, which is the locomotive power specified to causing some particular effect. He directs this power towards a certain subject, the zookeeper. This power is guided by reason, but it itself is not reason. It is a physical power directed to a very physical effect. Reason... With its ability to abstract, can direct to descriptions. In contrast, physical powers are directed to concrete physical effects residing in concrete physical individuals. Reason must reach descriptions by way of powers. It reaches the descriptions, then, by way of the concrete effect realized in this concrete individual. With his reason and will, Sam wants the death of a mammal. He must reach this mere description, however, by way of the very physical power to bring about death, which he must direct to a very concrete physical individual. Similarly, the doctor wants the size of the baby's head to be narrowed. She reaches this description, however, by a very physical power, which narrows the head by way of crushing. The physical power is directed towards a crushed skull, which is also an injury or harm. The will, following the abstractive power of reason, may be attracted to this crushed skull only insofar as it is a narrowing of the head. The will can get at this description, however, only by way of action. It has no direct access to effects. The will may intend the action under the formality of a narrowing of the head. Nevertheless, it does intend the action, which is itself directed to a crushed skull. The physical action does not distinguish between the crushed skull as a narrowed head or as an injury. In the world of strict intention, reason and will move directly to effects. The intervening power, with its action, is lost from sight. Reason and will, then, are free to move out towards effects simply under this or that description. They need not worry about the act of injuring. They need not concern themselves i'm sorry they need concern themselves only with the crushed skull but not under the formality of injury once descriptions become the norm then rigorists become prone to use what are merely hypothetical descriptions as we have seen lee and tollison do with regard to crushing and compressing a skull furthermore the focus upon effects prevents rigorists from understanding broad accounts of intention which emphasize actions rather than effects Another case of identity and distinction illustrates the point. Masik gives the example of a psychopath and a philanderer, both of whom buy a red sports car. Uh, Quote, The psychopath tries to buy a car with a color that evokes blood, but the philanderer tries to buy a car with a color that attracts attention. Close quote. Significantly, neither, neither the psychopath nor the philanderer is trying to cause or intend an effect. Both are trying to perform the action of buying. Masek describes both intention in terms of actions rather than effects, which is unsurprising, since the uh, actions do not fall within that category, amenable to the strict intention of focus upon effects. Nevertheless, Masek attempts to find some effects that might distinguish their intentions. He looks beyond the action itself towards possible remote goals. The psychopath wants the effect of evoking, in his own mind or others, the image of blood. The Flander wants the effect of others paying attention to him. Broad accounts of intention, claims Masick, blur the distinction between these two intentions. With their focus upon actions rather than effects, however, defenders of broad accounts are likely to recognize two identical actions both the psychopath and the philanderer buy a red sports car. The two differ not in the action they perform, but in their motives that give rise to the actions. Sometimes, of course, we use a wider account of action. Within uh, within actions, we include motive as well as what is immediately done. The action of buying a red sports car with the further motive of evoking the image of blood is indeed distinct from the action of buying a red sports car with a further motive of drawing attention. Nothing prohibits broad accounts from adopting this extended sense of action. In no way, then, uh, uh, need they blur the difference between the two. Masic, however, blurs the difference between the action performed and the motive for some further effect. The strict account of, of intention backs him into this corner. Since the action itself, buying a red sports car, has no immediate defining effect, Masek must have recourse to some further goal. This action is so automatic, given the paradigm of intending effects rather than actions, that Masek misses the point of the argument to which he is responding. The initial argument did not have two individuals, a psychopath and a philanderer, but only one individual who buys a red sports car. The point of the argument had nothing to do with his motive for buying a red sports car, a motive that Masick must introduce in order to find some effect intended. The point was only to suggest that in buying a red sports car, he is also buying, and intending to buy, a car that is the color of blood. Masek himself conceives the identity of a red car and a car the color of blood. He does not concede, however, that this identity has any implications for intention. It can affect intention only by some further effect intended. Unless the buyer is like the psychopath, then he does not intend to buy a car that is the color of blood. Neither, on this rigorous account, does he intend to buy a red car, unless something particular about its being red provides distinct motivation. If he does not care about the color, but only wants an inexpensive car, then he intends to buy a car, but not a red car. The diverse descriptions of the unified reality inter intention only by way of some effect that can be intended. Broad accounts of intention focus upon actions, not effects. Actions intervene between the will, guided by reason, and the effect desired. They arise from some power distinct from reason, a power moving out to real, concrete effects in real, concrete individuals. Multifarious descriptions are irrelevant to these powers. Reason, using these powers, is tied to an action that moves out to these concrete effects and concrete individuals. Reason might be concerned with these effects on account of a particular description, but it must move out to the action of the power, which is not concerned with descriptions, but with realities. On account of its fatal flaw, rigorous overlook the action and the power that gives rise to the action. Reason, with its penchant for abstract descriptions, is given complete reign, the reality of actions is lost, and actions become, like play, the plaything of reason to be shaped by the imagination. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu. cts